What would you do if you got scammed? Would you suffer in silence or would you do something about it? Well, I got scammed once and this is the story of what I did. I'm Justin Sales, the host of The Wedding Scammer, a true crime podcast from The Ringer. And for seven episodes, we're hunting a con man, a guy with a lot of aliases, a guy who's ruined a lot of weddings. And with the help of some friends, I just might be able to catch him. Listen to The Wedding Scammer on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. It is Wednesday, October 18th. We just got some new revenue numbers for the live concert business, and they're pretty amazing, especially when you consider the scary state of the rest of the entertainment economy. As of the end of the third quarter, global ticket grosses are at $5.7 billion, according to Polestar. That's up 50% over 2022, which was itself a pretty good year. The number is already higher than the year-end totals for 2018 and 2019. Anything live, anything experiential is just going through the roof, the analyst Jessica Reif Ehrlich told the Wall Street Journal. She's labeled this dynamic as, quote, funflation. We know all the reasons, the so-called revenge spending post-pandemic, the rise of the experience economy, especially among Gen Z and young millennials, the big tours that were on hold during COVID, the globalization of music thanks to streaming, turning Americans into fans of K-pop and Bad Bunny. Most of all, the generally strong economy, low unemployment. It's bigger than music, of course. Americans were on track to spend about $95 billion this year on tickets to spectator events, including movies, live entertainment, and sports, Journal reported, citing U.S. government stats. That's up 23% from all of last year and 12.5% higher than what was spent in 2019. For that reason, ticket prices continue to rise a lot. And it's not just a Taylor Swift and Beyonce thing. Those two tours together have grossed about $1.3 billion, and they're not done. But it hasn't all been screaming young women filling stadiums. Men are actually over-indexing on concerts this year. For the first time, the top five touring acts globally, Taylor, Bruce Springsteen, Harry Styles, Elton John, and Ed Sheeran, they each racked up more than $100 million in sold ticket revenue in the first half of 2023. There's usually only one or two tours to get to that level. We got some new data from a survey conducted recently by a variety intelligence platform in the UTA Talent Agency. This survey caught my eye because it delves into what kinds of shows people are seeing, the lengths they're going to see their favorite artists, and the rise of music tourism. It also talks about the role of ticket prices, the areas of weakness, 
and what these attitudes might suggest about the next couple of years in tours. So I got my buddy Andy Wallenstein to come in. He ran the study and he put out the report. So today it's the live music business and why concertgoers are spending more than ever on seeing their favorite acts. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Andy Wallenstein, who is the chief media analyst at Variety Intelligence Platform and a long-suffering Clippers fan. Welcome. Good to be with you. Have the Clippers been eliminated yet from the playoffs? Uh, the season has not started <laughs> technically, but... No, that's okay. I just, you know, I figured I'd ask. <laughs> uh, all right. So you partnered with UTA and did a an interesting study on how music consumers are feeling about the live concert experience. And obviously, this is an area I care about because it's one of the few bright spots in the entertainment industry these days. Everyone else seems to be descending into a chasm of hellish nightmares. And the live industry is going nuts. Like, it's numbers we have not seen before. So first of all, tell me a little bit about this survey, what you guys did, and why it should matter. I mean, basically, we just wanted to hear from consumers themselves about why they were showing out in force. And so we focused on U.S. consumers ages 15 to 69 and spoke to about over 4,000 of them in mid to late August, you know, the heat of uh, the summer concert season. Mm -hmm. And talk to them not only about the current season, but we wanted to put it uh, in perspective of also that pre-pandemic period as well uh, as a means of comparison. And wanted to hear from them about just about everything about the concert going experience. And it was definitely eye-opening. As someone who follows this stuff somewhat closely, I think it's pretty obvious. People were cooped up in the pandemic. They want a communal live experience, like maybe they missed out on. They are doing okay because the economy's doing okay. And now there are more choices because all these artists who sat on their hands during the pandemic are now out shaking their moneymaker to get paid. Isn't that the simple answer? I don't know if it's really that simple. First of all, if you read the headlines in the past year, there is certainly a lot of friction on the subject of these surging ticket prices. I mean, first of all, let me throw a stat at you from the third quarter, according to Polestar, the average ticket price for the top 100 tours worldwide, $122.84. That's up 20% year over year, which, I mean, that is kind of ridiculous. Okay, but... Maybe it's because there are some high ticket tours that are there. I mean, we'll get into Taylor Swift and Beyonce in a second, but like, okay, everything's up, inflation and, you know, the demand is up. So it would make sense that ticket prices are up, but people are willing to pay it because of the factors I just mentioned. Sure. But when we asked them whether they were chafing at some of these ticket prices, it was clear that cost was a big issue. When we asked them about what the biggest barriers were to live music event attendance, not only was high price the most cited barrier, but mm -hmm. also those junk fees, that was the second highest price. And I'm sure you've seen from those headlines, you know, 
This has become a big political football right now. Yeah, it's easy. It's easy for politicians to say they're anti-junk fees. But it's not just the politicians. What we're seeing from uh, what we've surveyed is there are certainly some consumers that are feeling this issue as well. Mm -hmm. So just right there, it's interesting to validate that these politicians are certainly responding to some actual consumer sentiment out there. All right. So give us your big picture takeaway. What surprised you most about this survey of music consumers? Well, I think to some degree that there's a bit of uh, contrasting indicators out there on the price front, because while on the one hand, there is some chafing about cost, on the other end, there's also, we saw some real willingness, on the other hand, to spend top dollar. So let me throw another stat at you. Mm -hmm. More than half of consumers are just as willing to purchase VIP tickets as they were pre-pandemic, while three in 10 have become more willing. So more people are willing to shell out for the better premium experience, in John Oliver's words, uh, yes. that, that they can now buy. And okay, so that's an indicator of what? That people value the experience more? They have more money in their pocket? They want to see their favorite artists that much more? Yes. And those resale platforms where I'm sure you've seen the astronomical increases that are going on there for ticket prices, we saw the overwhelming majority of live music goers are still very much willing to purchase there. There's still a lot of trust there. Mm -hmm. And so you're seeing on both ends of it that on the one hand, there's a lot of issues with cost. But on the other hand, there's still a lot of willingness to pay top dollar, which we found interesting that sort of both of these things are happening at the same time. Yeah. Some of the interesting stats were the lengths to which people will go to see their favorite artists. There was a stat in the study that 39% have flown within the U.S. specifically for a concert. And 30% have traveled to another country specifically for a live music event. That is an insane number. 30% have traveled internationally for a live music event. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And this was really an eye-opener to me. I had no idea, maybe you did, that there is a thing called music tourism out there that people... Oh, of course. I had no Dude, idea. Craig went to London to see the fake ABBA. To see the ABBA hologram. <laughs> I didn't go to London just to see the okay, fake oh, ABBA show. Okay, fine. I wouldn't be ashamed if I did. Okay, you, you went to London for a great experience with your now wife, and you happened to, in advance, purchase tickets to the ABBA show. Correct. How dare you smear Craig like that? All right, all right. So that's pretty insane that, that those numbers are high. I mean, it's people are using concerts as excuses for travel or as centerpieces of travel. Um, there's some other things that you know indicate the fandom here. Almost four out of five concert goers say that they've seen the same artist live more than once. That kind of makes sense, I guess. If you like someone, you know, you go. Of those people, 59% have seen the same artist four or more times. That's pretty nuts as well. Matt, have you ever seen the same artist four or more times? I mean, I've seen Pearl Jam a bunch of times, you know, I, over my lifetime started going to see them like when I was younger in college. And, but I've not seen, you know, most artists more than once, maybe twice. 10% said they have seen the same artists perform live more than 10 times. I mean, that's insane. 
Yeah. And the other one that I thought was really interesting was that a third of the respondents said they opened a credit card specifically for a pre-sale for a concert. So you wonder why like Capital One is paying Taylor Swift what they're paying her. Like that's the reason. And you know, American Express, like why they do all these deals with all these artists. That's the reason. People want to see the artist so badly, they're willing to open a credit card for that purpose. All right, Craig, I've got a quiz for you. What genre of music is most popular for live concerts right now? I feel like you're leading me into saying pop, but that means the answer is probably like rock and roll. It is. You know me. It is rock shows. Rock, metal, and punk are 46% on the pie graph of what music genre people are going to see live. Boomers. Now, is that boomers? It's boomers, I think. It's it's and it's all these legacy acts, you know, like the Metallica, Def Leppard, all these other bands that that tour forever. But pop is not far behind. Pop is at 44%, country is at 43%, hip hop and rap is at 43%, and then R&B is 35%. So there's a cluster around 46, 43% of rock, pop, country and hip hop. So it's not that big a difference. But I was surprised a little bit that that rock was so dominant, considering the two biggest acts right now are both pop stars in Taylor and Beyonce. Let's talk a little bit about Taylor and Beyonce, because if you do the math on what those two tours have generated so far, it's about $1.3 billion, a little above that. That's about a little less than a quarter of the overall pie for the first three quarters of this year. So two tours have generated a quarter of the gross. Not bad. No, it's tremendous. But I think there's this kind of simple narrative out there that this big, massive year in the concert business is all about those two. And what we saw when we looked at the numbers is there really is a much bigger, broader base that is succeeding out there. That is, as you just cited, there's a lot of different genres that are doing really well. It's not just about pop and R&B. The country number is insane, 43%. I mean, Morgan Wallen's a big boost for that, but like, it's crazy. Yeah, Morgan Wallen's got the biggest country tour of all time that he scored this year. Men in general, again, there's this narrative that uh, Beyonce and Taylor Swift have unlocked female spending power. And that is true, but our survey showed that number one, men as a audience segment should not be underestimated. We saw in so many different ways, they came out for so many different genres. Well, what are the stats? I mean, the stats I'm looking at is that men were more likely to have gone to a concert in 2023 than women, 42% to 31%. And men were almost twice as likely as women to say that their concert attendance has increased during the past 12 months compared to pre-COVID. So what's going on there? Is it is it just that Metallica is touring now? I mean, what is it? I think it's a lot of different things across a lot of different genres. It's not just and by the way, let's not let's not even get too stereotyped here. I think the men are also at Taylor and Beyonce yeah, as well. That's true. I, I'm one of them. There you go. Yeah. No, I I know. I don't want to say that just young girls, but I went to Taylor and the majority of the audience is female. Sure. So I also think on stage, let's not forget that men, they had a great year as well. Were it not for Taylor and Beyonce, we would be talking about 
Harry Styles, Elton John, Coldplay, they all had great years. Mm. I mean, Elton John set a massive record this year by scoring over 900 million in revenues for a tour that, yes, dated back to 2018. Wait, that's this year or that's from the tour that's been going on for five years now? Yes, it has been going on for five years. <laughs> but the guy needs to ride that yellow brick road away and just go away now. He cannot, he cannot keep uh, having the farewell tour for years and years and years. That is true. But if you looked at the first half of the year, you will see uh, that men did very well. We have a slide that shows month after month, uh, so many male acts actually did incredibly well. And by the way, I don't want to even give the, the, the women short shrift as well. When you look uh, beneath Taylor and Beyonce, a lot of strong female performers as well. Pink, Carol G had strong acts as well. So just an incredible- Who are the popular year. ones for men? It's, I know Metallica, Coldplay, who else? I mentioned Harry Styles, Ed Sheeran. Oh, yeah, of course. Tremendous year for him. Yeah. Don't forget Bad Bunny, Lucas's favorite. Don't forget Bad Bunny, uh, The Weeknd, Drake, mm-hmm. Dead & Company had a good year as well, even though they're kind of out there every year. Muse had a great year, Red Hot Chili Peppers. You know, there was just a lot of strong performers out there. But if you look at the top five highest grossing tours of all time this year, Harry Styles, Elton John, and Coldplay all cracked the top five with tours that ended in 2023. Granted, all three of these tours started before 2023, but it's still saying something. Well, and Beyonce and Taylor Swift will both join that list before they are done. The projection on Taylor Swift is at least $1.4 billion and she's likely to add a bunch of additional shows. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. All right, let's look forward here and what these numbers may suggest about the next year or two in touring. Because obviously, Taylor and Beyonce will be a big deal, but there's going to be a bunch of new tours out there. Madonna's back on the road. She had her health issues, but she's there. Olivia Rodrigo is going on tour. There's a bunch of others that are planning. What does the survey data suggest about consumer desire and how it might continue into next year? We saw a lot of optimism across the board that there is still tremendous demand for concerts. 
And so there's no reason to believe that this hot streak isn't going to continue. Yeah, the numbers that I saw in your survey said that more than half of all U.S. consumers anticipate going to a show in the next 12 months. And that is higher than the 36% who have attended in the past 12 months. So that means that even though these numbers are good, at least the anticipation for next year could be even bigger. Absolutely. I mean, and look, when you look at some of the acts you just mentioned, it's not hard to see why. Is it just the acts, though? Like, has something changed in the ethos? You know, people say, oh, millennials don't care about saving money anymore. They know they're not going to be able to buy a house. So they just spend on whatever they want in the moment. And, you know, the, their parents now have all this extra money because they've been saving up during COVID and have been working on their house or doing other things. Now they're not doing that. They are spending it on whoever's coming to town. And these artists are taking advantage of that. And that's the new normal. Do you think that's the new normal? Or does the sentiment suggest that this was a temporary revenge spending spree post-COVID and it will ultimately settle back down? Well, I do think there's a number of different factors that we have to watch here. I do think you did put your finger on a few of them. And uh, number one, yes, there is this millennial sensibility that They value the experience in a way that maybe previous generations didn't. Previous generations that were more savings-minded, whereas this generation does put more value into experiences. And I can understand that. On the other hand, here's another factor that you didn't mention that we have to keep an eye on, which is student loan forgiveness, which did not go well for Joe Biden. I do wonder whether people that would have otherwise been open to spending the money that they would have saved on their student loans are now going to have to be a little more disciplined in their Mm. spending. So discretionary spending, meaning whether it was tax relief or student loans or whatever, that less money in your pocket means less willingness to go and pay the extra money to go see your favorite artist. I wonder whether that's something that will turn out to be a factor. I know uh, in previous uh, earnings calls, Live Nation has called that out. I do think that's something we're going to have to keep an eye on. Uh, But I also think the post-pandemic bump is something that it has to fade at some point. And I think we're already on borrowed time, given that that really can't be a factor for too much longer. I think we have to keep an eye on the economy. If you look lately at some of the consumer sentiment, it really has soured in a big way. Also, I mean, at some point, Taylor and Beyonce will leave the road. I mean, they can't be on the road forever. And that that we will see that we've seen the the Taylor bump and the Beyonce bump when whatever market they go to. But we're probably going to see the opposite happen whenever they leave the road, whether it's next year, the year after. Whenever that happens, we got to see a, a depression here. Craig, you are our uh, specific anecdotal young millennial Gen Z representative on this show. Uh, are you going to more shows? I certainly am. And I would say most of my friends are as well. Ed Sheeran, Swift, and Beyonce, and Jonas Brothers, to be honest, have yeah. really kind of taken a command of the year. But I don't, you look, I don't, people are going to less movies now. So maybe concerts are replacing that a little bit too. But it just feels like music acts are bigger than they've ever been right now. Yeah. And honestly, the 
FOMO, I feel, from social media is a big factor. Like I saw the other night, Brandy Carlisle had a thing with Joni Mitchell and Annie Lennox. And I was like, oh, that would have been fun. Like I saw, like, you know, you see Pink doing her thing and, and like, oh, I'm bummed that so-and-so was there. So I feel like the FOMO element of social media now makes us all jealous. If we I do agree with show. that. I think that's a huge factor because back in the day, you know, tech, no one knew what was going on at concerts. And now it's like, oh, what's Taylor Swift's secret song? Oh, who did Ed Sheeran bring out? Yeah. And why does that fucker get to go? And I didn't. Right. I do wonder, though, about the concert movie and how that might become more common after Beyonce and Taylor. Maybe not even as just an event, yeah. but as the inventory of the regular old movie starts to continue to dwindle, especially if the strike lingers for SAG, will we see that become a more common occurrence? Yeah, we've talked about it. You know, there's a limited number of artists who can pack theaters, but I do think that that will be something that is replicable on a smaller scale, not on the Taylor smaller. scale, but yeah. they could do it. They could, you know, they could beef up. And I think a bunch of artists that, you know, you could, if you put an Adele movie in theaters on Mother's Day, I think moms and daughters might go to that. And some of these big artists like uh, Drake or the, the big touring artists like Fish, you know, their fans might show up in theaters, but we'll see. What do you think of the sphere? Do you think the sphere is going to be meaningful for the concert business? I think in the short term, no. In the long term, I do wonder how the sphere will scale, uh, how that kind of technology will become more pervasive around the world, whether the sphere itself, will we see more spheres around the world? Yeah, they, they've already said that's the plan. They want spheres. They don't want like five, seven of them in the next five to 10 years. Well, but I wonder whether we're going to see similar plays, perhaps lower cost plays. Mm -hmm. You've got to imagine that we're going to see similar technologies that maybe aren't, you know, at that kind of ticket price that will elevate the audio and visual innovations that could maybe be incorporated within the existing infrastructure out there as opposed to building these things from the ground up. Yeah, I don't know. They've done it where they've brought in all the typical stakeholders in music. Live Nation is involved. Irving Azoff is involved with, on the artist side. You know, they, they've sort of involved the music industry to get them all to be pro-sphere. So I don't know that they're going to try to undercut. But you never know if this becomes the norm and you got to tour, you got to have a special visual extravaganza to go along with it. Maybe that'll be the new standard. I don't know. All right, Andy, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Tell us where we can see more of this study. Sure. Just go to variety.com slash live music and check it out. All right. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate the time. All right. We are back with the call sheet. Craig, you watch a lot of stand-up specials on streaming? To be honest, I, I really don't. But I, there are so many comedians now uh, getting huge deals at Netflix and now Amazon in the stand-up space. And a lot of comedians online now who have comedy podcasts are getting live shows. Yeah, there's a million comedy podcasts. I follow a lot of comedians on social and uh, it's fun. And I do watch the specials a lot. I was watching the Burt Kreischer special, the Shane Gillis special on Netflix is great. Oh, interesting. You know, this was a really interesting business story for many years because Netflix basically came in and completely disrupted the HBO Comedy Central dominance in the stand-up space, started paying. $10, $20 million to these A-list 
comedians like Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock to do specials, Ted Sarandos at Netflix, huge comedy fan. He basically said, we're going to corner the market. And the thinking was that these were efficient content in the parlance of streaming, meaning, yeah, you might pay a few million bucks for the average comedy special, but they eat up minutes. People who like them, watch them, and it's cheaper than doing a movie or even a docu-series that you can uh, get a lot of value out of the stand-up specials. But my prediction today is that Amazon and Hulu are going to become much bigger players in the stand-up space. I have heard from multiple people now that they are gunning for it. I saw there was an announcement today that a comedian named Trevor Wallace just did a deal for an Amazon stand-up special. He's a big TikTok guy, uh, has a podcast. A successful podcast. I'm always shocked at how well social media stars podcasts do. Looking at the numbers, because I work at Spotify, I can look at like any podcast numbers. I am always shocked at how successful the comedy podcast is, particularly with TikTok and YouTube stars. They're so successful. I know. I don't listen to them, but they're gigantic. I mean, and the thing I have a lot of friends who listen to comedy podcasts. Yeah, there's so many of them. You'd think that they would cancel each other out or what, but you, you know, these people, they find a following on social media and then it transfers over to their podcast. Well, cause it's like a mini standup special. Totally. You get to get standup content from your favorite standup comedians or favorite online comedians every week. It's just like mini versions of a standup every week. Yeah. I had lunch with an agent in that space who was talking about how he advises clients to do a podcast, even if it's not going to become huge because it's a good way to train yourself. You know, and you take the best material and then turn it into your act and then potentially turn it into a special that you can sell. And, you know, Netflix is not paying those gigantic numbers that it once did when it was trying to dominate the space. You know, they are not breaking the bank if you're not Chris Rock. But I think that they're going to have competition now. I think that the fact that Amazon and Hulu are seeing that Netflix has gotten a lot of value out of this and comedy fans are very loyal. They come back to these services. So I think the, the space is going to heat up and there's going to be two new competitors. And I think that that's probably good for the stand-up space because just having one dominant place like Netflix is probably not great. Yeah, and it feels like people are also more comfortable watching a stand-up special at home than needing to go see it, unlike the concerts that we were just talking about with Andrew. True. Yeah, I know. I just And, and also, like I like that it's like an hour, hour and 15 it's like you don't want to commit to a movie, but you don't you want a little bit more than like a half hour episode of a show and you can stop it and come back and you can do other things like you're almost like you're listening to it while you're doing other things. It's like the perfect streaming content. It really is. And like yeah. I said, you can always go back to the podcast if there's no stand up special to watch. It's like that or selling sunset, you know, just lean back, lean back and enjoy. Oh, I love selling sunset. Oh, who doesn't man? Who doesn't? All right. That's the show for today. <laughs> I want to thank my guest, Andy Wallenstein. I want to thank producer Craig Horbeck, our editor, Justin Lopez. And I want to thank you. We will see you later this week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.